Singing Dutchman Productions. Hello and welcome to Doug's Front Porch, a podcast where I get to sit down with friends, old and new, and have honest conversations. Today I welcome David Hunsiger to the front porch, someone that I've gotten to know through social media probably more than any other way. I got to physically meet him for the first time this summer at the Kutztown Folk Festival. I think he has an awesome multicultural background story that I can't wait to share with everybody here today. So David, welcome to the front porch. Thanks, Doug. Uh, it's great to be here with you. All right. I want to start with this question because our connection, the way we became connected, was through uh, Pennsylvania Dutch stuff online. And you have a very Pennsylvania Dutch last name, Hunsiger. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that? Where did you grow up and um, what connection did Pennsylvania Dutch have to you in your childhood and, and in your life? Sure. Yeah. I mean, as you said, Hunsiger is a very Pennsylvania Dutch last name. Um, I grew up in rural uh, Lehigh County, uh, and basically my family has lived in that same little plot um, for, you know, about 275 years. Um, I grew up, I mean, the first five years of my life, I spent on the Handwork family homestead, which, you know, still has buildings that were erected in 1769. Um, and so I grew up in the shadow uh, of, you know, an old German, Pennsylvania German uh, farmhouse. And my aunt, who lives just a mile from there, um, she owns the property, which is the original Hunziker homestead from the 1750s. Um, so very much tied to that part of uh, my identity. And, you know, growing up, you know, my best friends were my cousins. And, you know, some of the highlights of growing up were things like doing work on the farm. And I have to admit, I was one of the younger cousins, so I didn't do a whole heck of a lot of work. But I, you know, we would get together, we would bale hay, we would bale straw, help my grandfather on the farm. And we'd get together afterwards and have a great Pennsylvania Dutch meal and play football in the yard. And, you know, it, it I can't think of a more idyllic way to grow up. Than that was the exact word when you were saying all that. That's the word that was in my mind. Like, what an idyllic childhood. That's awesome that you got yeah, to experience. It really that. was. Yeah. yeah. So let's go in a different direction. So you grew up in this, in this, 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 you know, this Norman Rockwell style <laughs> painting. Um, what? Uh, where did you go after high school? What happened next? Well, so I'm actually going to start my story before leaving high school. Um, so, you know. Having had that kind of, you know, idyllic, uh, you know, uh, upbringing in this Pennsylvania Dutch environment where, you know, I heard Pennsylvania Dutch spoken around me all the time. But like I said, I was one of the younger cousins and even my older cousins didn't really uh, speak Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, and, you know, I picked up phrases along the way, but it was generally the language that my grandparents spoke at home when they didn't want us to understand. I mean, my, my elder aunts and uncles spoke it. And, you know, when we would go to my grandparents' place and they were playing Haas or something, you know, with their friends uh, at the table, they'd be chattering in Pennsylvania Dutch. So I had this desire to understand what they were talking about. And um, I took four years of German in high school. 
um, and, you know, had the opportunity uh, with my high school to go to Germany for a short trip. And, uh, you know, it's like 10 days or something like that. And it was absolutely wonderful. And so my junior year of high school, I applied to the Rotary Club uh, to have a, a year abroad. Uh, they had a year abroad study abroad program. And so I, I applied to that with the intention of going to Germany for a year and, you know, really solidifying my German language skills and um, that sort of thing. And, you know, and they do this kind of reveal of where you're going to go at the Christmas party that they hold every year. And they had given us a list of like 30 countries and you're supposed to rank the top 15. So I had Germany at the top and I think Norway was second and I had, Australia third, uh, on down the list. Long story short, um, at the Christmas party, I open up the little envelope, which has a pin with my name on it. Um, the pin is actually a map of the United States. On the back side is a little sticker, and it says Turkey. I'm like, huh, Turkey. My mom initially was a little bit taken back. She's like, wait, he needed to go to Germany. That's what he signed up for. And I'm like, actually, hold on. I, this is good. I, I like this idea of going to Turkey. Um, and, and part of that story is I had been exploring my, my faith um, and had become particularly attracted to Islam. And so when in going to Germany, I had already had it in the back of my head that there's a lot of, you know, German uh, Turkish guest workers living in Germany. And I wanted to explore um, Islam with them. And, you know, the way I look at it, it was like, God said, no, you're going to do it directly. <laughs> and you're going to go to Turkey and spend a year there. So that's what I did. I went and I lived with a host family in Turkey, went to a Turkish high school, um, learned to speak Turkish uh, quite well. And um, then when I came back uh, to the United States, finished out my senior year, um, and I uh, went on then uh, after I graduated, I studied first at New York University for a year. And for a rural Pennsylvania Dutch kid, that was the dumbest thing I could have possibly done was go to New York City. Like I, I intended to do a, a degree program there um, in Near Eastern languages and civilizations to continue with the Turkish, to continue uh, picking up Arabic and other uh, Middle Eastern languages. And so I did that for a year. Uh, that didn't work out. And then, you know, I went to another big metropolis. I went to Cairo. Egypt uh, for several months um, to the American University there and also to you know work on my Arabic etc but I also wasn't happy there also a bit of a, a huge city <laughs> and uh, honestly I felt it was, I, I in my you know 19 year old mind I also thought it was going to be a lot more like Turkey um, and actually Egypt and Turkey are, are you know very different uh, in a, you know culturally um, certainly linguistically, but um, I, I wasn't really happy there. Eventually went to the University of Michigan, uh, which is one of the few places in the United States that at that time had an undergraduate Islamic studies program. Um, and so I finished out my, my undergraduate career there. Um, and uh, I was, I mean, it, it was really great. I thought about going immediately into um, graduate school. Um, but I, things didn't work out kind of 
uh, I didn't get the funding I had hoped for uh, to go out straight from undergraduate into a, a graduate program. Um, but I did in my senior year uh, of college, I met a visiting professor from Turkey who was a specialist in the languages of the Turkic languages of the former Soviet Union. Specifically, he was uh, an expert in Azerbaijani, uh, Azeri, um, and, but he also knew Uyghur and Uzbek and several other Turkic languages of the former Soviet Union. And he came and he wanted to improve his English. And um, we ran into one another and said, I said, hey, I'll help you with your English if you can maybe tutor me a little bit in one of these other Turkic languages. And that soon turned into us sitting in um, a coffee shop in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and him just telling me stories about um, his travels in the former Soviet Union. This was 1992, 93. So the Iron Curtain had just come down most of these uh, countries had just received their independence from the Soviet Union. Um, and so it was, you know, a wide open space for exploration and study that hadn't been available just a few years prior to that. So I decided once I did go to graduate school that that's the part of the world that I wanted to, to focus on. Uh, fast forward a few years, I spent a few years working in a bookstore um, I got into a graduate program in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the University of Washington out in Seattle, which is one of the few uh, places in the country that uh, uh, has taught Turkic languages for now over like 40, probably 50 years. All right, David, there is so much to unpack there. And I want to rewind a little bit because the first question that came to my mind when you were telling that story is um, I'm familiar with the Rotary Exchange Program. I've had quite a lot of students that have done that at my high school themselves. Actually, right now I have a a girl from Colombia in my German class who's on the Rotary Exchange with us. Um, but okay, so you're this Pennsylvania Dutch kid. Here's the first question I, I've, I've, I've wondered about. You said that you were interested in learning more about Islam. As a kid growing up in the Lehigh Valley, or you know, in Lehigh County, in the time period that you did, on a Pennsylvania Dutch farm, you know, ag ag agrarian setting, what, how did you even gain any kind of knowledge about Islam? And what peaked, what about it piqued your interest? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the, the short answer to that question is I was a nerdy kid with a lot of questions. And so I would spend a lot of time in the library um, reading books and I explored a variety of uh, different faith traditions. And so well, one quick question, growing up, did you grow up in a faith community? So I, I, I grew up in the UCC church. Um, we went to a union church, which, you know, uh, for, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch are uh, very common one half being UCC or as reformed as they used to call it. And, and the other half Lutheran and, you know, switching off uh, different times, uh, each week and or switching off weeks, uh, of, you know, who goes to, to church and, and you know, I would go to Sunday school. Um, and, you know, honestly, my, exploration of islam i feel it was a direct outgrowth of my personal attachment to the bible and the stories that i read there like i said a nerdy kid with a lot of questions started reading the bible um you know uh starting as you do from the beginning of the book with genesis and but i, I will admit i jumped around a lot you know and spent a fair amount of time 
you know, reading, you know, <clears throat> Kings and Chronicles and, you know, the parts where my namesake David appeared and, um, you know, had a real attachment to the biblical story. Um, but at the same time, I felt that there was a disconnect between that Old Testament religion that I was reading about and what I was experiencing as a Christian in the church, um, things like dietary laws and, you know, observing the Sabbath or, you know, all of these different things, which are so very prevalent in the Old Testament um, that um, I felt like, well, there's something more we need to be doing um, to, to basically live out God's plan for us. Uh, it has to be something more active. And at the same time, I also struggled with the concept of the Trinity. When I would read the New Testament, I was reading uh, with a lens of the Old Testament prophets. And when I would read about Jesus, it was, uh, you know, as one of God's prophets, not as the son of God, not um, as, you know, one part of a triune uh, God of the Trinity. And so that didn't sit well with me, honestly. And I felt I needed to explore uh, other avenues. And, you know, in my reading, you know, I came across Islam and, you know, the first time, you know, I, I, I read about it, you know, no drinking, no pork, no dating. Like, who's going to sign up for that? I mean, particularly as a Pennsylvania Dutchman. I mean, that makes no sense. Um, so, you know, but I, I kept on coming back to it. And, and eventually what um, solidified things for me was I uh, bought a copy of a translation of the Quran. Uh, at the bookstore and just brought it home and I started reading. And it was as though it was speaking directly to me and it was answering the questions that I had. Um, it, you know, established rituals and uh, requirements that, you know, guide the daily life of a Muslim. Uh, it spoke directly to the question of the Trinity. Um, and, you, you know, Islam is a, a Unitarian faith. We believe in the oneness of God and that is the the you know, the greatest commandment. And it's the greatest commandment that Jesus quotes in, you know, Mark 12, 29, um, where, you know, that the, the Lord God is, is one God. And, and that's the central theology of Islam as well. So I, with that, I was like, okay, yes, th this is what I need to believe. Um, and so, you know, the rest is history. So that can I ask you how that conversation went down when you told your parents? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Great question. So like I said, I've been exploring for a while. Nerdy kid, lots of books. I had gone through all sorts of phases. So like my parents at that point were like, okay, he's a Muslim this week. He was a Buddhist last week. We'll see what he is next week and just kind of take it from there. But, you know, the exchange experience really helped to kind of solidify that both for me personally because it allowed me to explore my faith in Turkey, uh, separate from my family. But then my family also had the opportunity at the end of that year to come and spend three weeks in Turkey. We traveled the country. They got to meet my host family. And they got to see that all that stuff that, you know, permeates the news is not um, what Islam is all about. And that it's, it's God-fearing people who have families and love their families and love their neighbors and you know, that's what Islam is for most uh, Muslims around the world on a daily basis. And so, and so that acceptance of that experience, like my parents seeing that firsthand really helped 
them to be accepting. And I, and I can't, couldn't ask for a more accepting family environment in terms of my faith choice. I mean, my aunts, uncles, cousins, I mean, I'll give you a, just another quick example. I, um, at one of my cousin's weddings, um, after I had come back from Turkey and had converted to Islam and, um, I, I went out to pray during the wedding reception and I came back in and my Pennsylvania Dutch grandmother said, Where, where'd you go? I said, well, you know, grandma, Mammy, you know, I, I said, Mammy, we, I, I have, you know, we have these five daily prayers and I had to go out to do my prayer and come back. She said, Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> David, I think, I think you're very lucky because I know that there are a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch families that would well some of them probably would have essentially shunned you from the family i mean i know that for a fact there are those mm -hmm. families out there so i i find i find it very uh uh heartening to hear that you had such a positive experience with with your with your with your family because there's a lot of families that couldn't take the news or or even try to understand you know what i mean yeah. not understand islam but understand your conversion your choice so i i mean kudos to your family for being welcoming and warm and and, and well and being being a family i mean you know, yeah it's yeah no absolutely I, I i couldn't be more blessed in that respect and you're absolutely right i i have seen how it has played out differently um for others not just converts to islam but you know various other faiths or things and you know people would challenge my my parents as well and say aren't you worried about your son's soul you know and my mom would say like he doesn't drink he prays five times a day he doesn't womanize like no i'm not worried about my son's soul um so, it, so those kinds of reactions like you said are, are not necessarily typical but it's also a function i think of when i became muslim um this was the the late 80s and it was before i mean the press and the media is what it is and there was already you know all sorts of stuff about the iranian revolution and what that represented and you know all of these other things but there was islam wasn't demonized quite as much as it would be after 9-11 um, well, can I can I ask you then? So you're you know by that point by nine eleven you're you know over ten years a Muslim. Um, how did you? How did that attack affect you from the from the personal slash faith perspective? Were you attacked at all? Not maybe not necessarily physically, but did you get blowback being a, a Muslim in the United States right after nine eleven? So. Interestingly, I was not in the United States uh, when 9-11 took place. Um, I was living in Uzbekistan in the former Soviet Union. Um, and um, I, I had just, it's, it, it's really interesting because I was flying out of JFK to go back to Uzbekistan that summer after having been home to visit family. And, you know, as we were crossing the, the bridge on the way to, to uh to jfk i you know i looked over at the twin towers and you know i was just kind of soaking it in uh and i don't know why i took that moment to really just soak it in but it, you know as we all know just a couple months later um you know they they were attacked and and brought down and um i had you know like i said i was in uzbekistan and i got the news via an email from one of my friends who um had studied in Uzbekistan with me and had gone home to the States and emailed us like, you should turn on the news. Something's going on, you know, in New York. And um, 
you know, I did. And I, you know, I was watching CNN, which was available to me there. And, um, and then, uh, you know, other Americans, particularly Peace Corps volunteers who were working there, um, who didn't necessarily have access to CNN because they were, you know, living with uh, Uzbek families or in, you know, somewhat rural areas, whatever. Uh, they heard the news trickle out and you know, I started inviting them. I said, you know, come to my apartment um, and we'll watch this together uh, as a group of Americans. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, it really, you know, it helped us to have that community of, of, of being Americans together uh, in that moment. But, you know, because I wasn't in the U S and yeah, I certainly didn't um, experience any, you know, immediate blowback. And, and actually what ended up happening was that soon thereafter, because I was there doing research um, in language training, uh, I had a lot of contacts in the Muslim community in Uzbekistan. Um, and so the embassy reached out to me, um, the U.S. embassy, and said, hey, uh, we would like to reach out to the Muslim community there to explain, you know, that we as the United States government understand, um, you know, that this was not an attack by Islam or Muslims, but it was an attack by criminal terrorists, and that you know, we are going to, um, you know, take actions against them in Afghanistan. Um, and this is not a war on Islam, but again, it's a war on uh, terrorism and terrorists. And um, we want to be able to explain that. And but we don't have contacts in this community. So would you facilitate? those meetings um, with the, the the religious community in Uzbekistan, which which I did. And uh, yeah, the- that is that is an unbelievable ask. I'm from my perspective. Listen, you tell that story. Here's the government like, hey, Dave, we don't really know you all that well, but we want you to be the lead contact between the faith community of this country and the United States government. Like, were you I, when you got that call were was it? a sense of excitement that you were given this responsibility? Was it a f- fear in the sense like, my God, there's a lot, you know, I, there's a lot on my shoulders here. Or, you know, how did you, <laughs> how did you take that phone call? And how did you even then start that journey to having those conversations with those locals? So, um, it actually wasn't as outlandish an ask as it seems. And I can understand you're hearing this story for the first time, how that comes, but it's very small community of Americans in Uzbekistan. You know, it's not like the Americans in Germany or the Americans, even in a place like Turkey, Um, you know, it, Uzbekistan had been, you know, independent for all of 10 years uh, at that point and had, you know, was still not, not opened up to the world. Um, it was still a very tightly controlled country. Um, and so there was a very small expat community. And one of the guys who was working at the embassy actually happened to be somebody I studied the Turkmen language with um, in another, uh, at Indiana University out in Bloomington um, at one point. And so he and I had a personal relationship um, and he reached out and he talked to his folks. He's like, hey, you know, Dave, has these connections he's been here for a couple years um you know maybe he can help us out and again i mean because i was kind of straddling these two worlds it just seemed natural for me to um you know do that i mean it it was what i felt i was being called to do both 
as an American as well as a Muslim. And I was so, I was wondering yeah. if there was a sense of of almost patriotism there uh, in this in this mission, so to speak, that you were sort of sent on. Okay, all right. Yeah, without question. Um, and yeah, and and it became not just you know a calling for that moment, but you know over 20 years later, I, you know, I'm working for the U S government, um, and have been for most of, uh, those 20 years, uh, since that point. I couldn't make a better transition. Thanks so much, Dave. That was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so can we talk about your current job? Cause I find this fascinating as well. I think everybody else will too. So what, what are you currently doing? And I know that you're, you, we brief, we debriefed each other before we started. So you might not hear every fact I want to know because of sensitive material, things like that. Uh, but tell us about your job, please. Sure. And there's very little about my job that is sensitive. I should just say that up front. Um, but, I work for the United States Agency for International Development, often known as USAID. And within that, I work for the Center for Conflict and Violence Prevention. Okay, and as an as an average taxpayer, mm -hmm. what, you know, in 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 a sentence, what does that agency, what is the mission of that agency? So we are the main assistance arm of the US government internationally. So we work to promote um economic prosperity and stability in countries around the world um, so as to protect our own national interests and national security. I mean, the basic idea is that if we help other countries have a prosperous and peaceful life, that that will help to maintain uh, our peace and prosperity at home. I mean, as we've seen with COVID, for example, things that start in one place don't just end in those places, right? And so a health emergency in China can, can become a health emergency in the United States. A, um, as we saw with 9-11, instability uh, in a place like Afghanistan, which allows uh, you know, a, a terrorist group to take root, doesn't just become a problem in that part of the world. It becomes a part uh, it becomes a, a problem here at home as well. And so uh, USAID works to basically prevent those problems from ever reaching our shores. You know, we're, we're limited in what we can do. Ultimately, you know, we can't get ahead of everything. But, um, you know, I like to say that a lot of the work that we do, um, you know, is to keep things from ever getting into the headlines. It's to stop problems uh, before they they ever uh, reach our shores. And it, it really is about the generosity of the American people um, being able to support countries that, you know, uh, require assistance in a variety of different areas, whether it's health or education or uh, civil society development, dealing with their internal conflicts, which is the piece that I focus on. Um, and, you know, it, you know, helping those countries with, you know, ta U.S. taxpayer money to, um, you know, deal with some of those issues. Um, yeah, that's pretty that's it in short. So you are right now. One of the one of the things that you're working with is a topic that I think a lot of Americans think they know about, but I bet we don't really know about it. So could you talk about that, please? Sure. Yeah. So I, I, I work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Okay, uh, there you go. I mean, that's like for, for most of us that that has been 
you know, something that's been in the news our whole lives. When I think back to growing up as a kid in the 80s, I remember hearing about Palestine and Israel. And of course, you know, if you study history, then you're going back, you know, into the the war that was in the 60s and, and all of this fallout still today. And I think the average American thinks that is a issue that'll never solve or never get solved. I mean, how many presidents have tried? So you are smack dab in this and i tell me about it please (laughs) so uh i'm a student of history um as i think you know has been reflected in part and part of our conversation up to this point and so you know i like to approach things uh within that larger historical timeline and you know you you talked about um how you know Various presidents have tried to address this, and you know, they try to address it in a moment in time. But it has to be understood in the larger arc of history, of course, right? And yes, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know, has been an ongoing one for certainly for our life lifetimes, and and going back uh, further than that. But it's within the larger frame of history, you know, it's still relatively. Young. I mean, there there are conflicts that have gone on and evolved and shaped over you know uh, centuries and millennia, and you know this is part of that larger um, you know uh, arc of history, but it's also you know anchored in in in, in the time in which we live and the approach that you know we take in our work as an assistance arm of the U.S. government is to work with those civil society actors um, in uh, the West Bank, in Gaza, uh, and in uh, Jerusalem, and in Israel to try to find ways to come together around uh, issues of common interest. And we as human beings all have things that we care about. And one of the key ways in which we can resolve conflicts is when we find those things that we care about together as communities in conflict and try to come around those issues as a stepping stone towards, uh, you know, establishing a peaceful coexistence. And, you know, obviously the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is incredibly complicated and, you know, there are... Um, identity issues, there are land issues, there are political issues, there are security issues. Um, But what we focus on is on finding ways to bring people together um, in a way that respects everybody's dignity, that um, makes everybody feel as though they're coming to the table as equals, and to um, find ways to create a community and a to create a culture of peace uh, in the midst of a lot of uh, bloodshed and conflict. And, and, and the, the, the main idea behind that at the end of the day is that there is this constituency for peace that when peace comes, they're going to be able to help to carry it forward. They're not going to bring peace on their own. And we just need to make sure that they continue to grow as a community. And when bad things happen, when the conflict strikes home and violence um, hits home, that they're able to basically pick themselves up, brush themselves off and keep on going um, with the good work of trying to bring about peace in the future. So from an outsider's perspective, someone that just follows this casually through the news, I I get the sense that these two sides don't even want to talk to each other. Now you're on the you're on the inside. 
is is that is there truth to that or are there people i'm sure there are people but as a general statement are both sides trying at least to do something i mean there's the political level and then there's the popular level and you know on the political level they continue to have talks and then talks break down and um you know there isn't a whole lot of official will, uh, I think, uh, on either side um, to really push forward uh, a groundbreaking new peace agreement. And, you know, like you said, every new administration comes in and has a new, new initiative. And those initiatives are important because eventually some pieces of them stick. Right. And it establishes a new starting point that can be built upon and you know but there are obviously um you know two steps forward one step back a lot of time on the political level um and at the popular level as well i mean because there's so little movement at the political level it's hard for people to really envision a future where they might live together um so it, it makes it really difficult but that doesn't stop a really determined community of folks from continuing to know what is that they they have to have peace at some point. It can't live in perpetual conflict. And they come to an understanding of the other side as, you know, being human beings with, um, you know, concerns for their families just like they have and that they want a better future for their sons and daughters and they're willing to do the unpopular thing and come together with folks from the other side to try and you know move that agenda forward so it is a relatively small peace building community that's there but it's incredibly resilient and that's what we as the u.s government through uh the programs that uh, we have appropriated to us by Congress. Um, we, you know, the, the program that I work on between the Israelis and the Palestinians is the congressional appropriation. Congress says this is important to do, and, and we certainly agree and, 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 and do what we can to, to move that agenda forward, um, to you know, create an environment where peace can take root uh, when the time is right. All right. So here's a off the wall question for you. Given your background and this work that you do, let's look at the United States real quickly. I'd like your your opinion um, from someone on the inside of working with a very high stress communities where they're actually sometimes will shoot rockets at each other and kill each other. So, I mean, from right now in the United States, we are society pretty pretty divided and both sides whether you're blue red purple whatever there seems to be a, a lot of anger uh tension um not to the point where we're shooting rockets at each other but from your perspective as someone that works to build peace um have have here okay i'm gonna ask it have we as a society gone too far or is, in your opinion, do you still think there is way for us to, to build this 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 rift that we have in this country, um, whether it's politically, socially, whatever, you know, this this anger, this angst or whatever it is? Do you think we can still fix that? Well, I, I'm going to I'm going to start by saying what I probably should have said a little bit earlier, that the opinions that I will express are <laughs> belong wholly to myself and do not necessarily reflect those of my employer, the United States <laughs> International Development or the U.S. government. These are Duly my personal noted. <laughs> um, But 
I mean, yes, absolutely. They, these cleavages that we see in our society are ones that are, we can see in other societies as well. I mean, the you know, the United States of America is a great country, um, and, but we are not exceptional in terms of our immunity to these conflict dynamics that we see in other parts of the world. And we need to be wary uh, about what the consequences can be. I mean, we, we have had civil wars in this country, starting with our own revolution, which was a, a civil war uh, between those that wanted independence and those that didn't. Um, and the, the civil war from, from 1861 to 1865 that we commonly call the civil war. And we've brought ourselves to the brink on various other uh, you know, periods in our history as well. And, you know, we, we have to make an effort um, to identify what the issues are and use the institutions that we have available to us, what has made us resilient as a nation and has helped us to weather some of these past crises have been the institutions that we have um, set up in this country with checks and balances that, you know, don't just um, put power in the hands uh, of a few, but that, you know, allow um, different voices to rise to the top and be part of the national conversation. And ultimately that we listen to one another and we come to compromise. Um, and, and that's what we're not doing right now. Uh, I feel as a country is we're not listening well to one another. We're, we're, we're not displaying empathy where we're understanding where the other side is coming from um, and understanding the fears that may be uh, driving uh, some of uh, the, the political behaviors uh, that we see. And so I think as a nation, we need to step back, take a breath, um, and you know, have some serious conversations about what the issues are that really divide us and think of a way that we can get through it. I mean, the 24-hour news cycle doesn't help us. Everything is either breaking news or clickbait or, you know, it, it's, it's designed to get us worked up, um, whereas we need to uh, have an approach that is a little bit more humble and recognizes that, um, you know, we do have issues that we need to work through as a country and it can get dangerous if we don't uh, address them and we let them get out of control. And that, you know, we take that time to be empathetic um, to those who may have uh, an opinion different from ours and, and take the time to listen and talk and, and work through them, through the, the institutions that God and the, and the founding fathers have granted us. Yeah, the two things that stick out from what you said for me personally is one that I, I hark all the time is the, is the point of just listening. It's one thing to talk, but and, and to have a conversation, we say, we'll have a conversation, but a conversation, have a true conversation, you have to listen to the other person. Not You don't have to oak, believe in what they're saying or necessarily mm -hmm. agree with them, but at least listen. And I think there's where, personally, me speaking, I think that's where we really fall. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more on... on the 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 influences and the outside pressures that are put upon the society either it's through social media or or the regular media or any of that and i think the the you know the <laughs> stepping back and taking a breath is such a is such a powerful uh, movement that we, I mean, think about it in your normal life. If you're having a bad day or something's not going right, what's the best thing to do? Just step back, take a deep breath, think about what's going on and you can like reset yourself a little bit. And I think as a country, I agree with you as a country, we need to, 
we could use a couple deep breaths. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> okay, David, this, I mean, oh man, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff because it's, it's funny, all too often, I think most Americans too, we only look at the world through our lens, period, and that's it, like through the American perspective and, and not necessarily saying that other perspectives don't count, but I mean, that's what we're, that's what kind of we're programmed to do. And you're in this very unique situation and your unique story where you have been able to look at the world through multiple different perspectives, whether it was, you know, your own growing up, your time in Turkey, that gave you that perspective, your time in Uzbekistan, and, you know, now floating between cultures and and countries, because you travel a lot as well with your job. Um, I would imagine that, uh, you know, you see things very differently, and you're able to make that, that physical step back and look at the bigger picture, where the average American, I think, A, never gets the experience to do something like that, or doesn't even know, I don't know how to... How to do that maybe is I don't want to make it sound like we're dumb, but if you're never given that opportunity or chance to step back and say, okay, let's think about this or let's think about this. And, you know, if, you, if you've never done it, it's hard to do, right? Just like anything else. So um, I, I've, I, I applaud you for the work that you're doing and hopefully your agency can – be the ones that finally bring peace to, to Palestine and Israel. That's a heavy job, but um, at least we're working. You know, it, it, that's the other thing. Like we could, we could have just thrown our hands up and walked away long already yeah. and said the hell with this. And um, we didn't, you know, and like you talked about perseverance. You have to, you have to keep, you have to keep, keep at it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we, as Americans have a responsibility understanding that we are connected to the rest of the world to get a greater understanding. I mean, and yes, not everybody can, can travel. I am blessed in the work that I do that I am able to go to a lot of different countries and, and, and get a different perspective. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly encourage Americans who can to, you know, travel to diverse places. I mean, the, the world, again, the news can scare you about everything that's going on out there, but like most people around the world are just like us. They want a better future for their kids. They want to live in peace. They, they, they want to, um, you know, have their kids get good jobs and, 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 and prosper in their lives. And, you know, that becomes so immediately apparent when you have the opportunity to, to meet with folks. Um, and, and it's true across the board, every culture, right? I mean, it may manifest itself differently. Um, but the other thing I'll say is like diversify your news sources. Like, you know, Deutsche Welle has a website and they have their perspective on news. I love the BBC. Um, you know, there are other uh, news outlets out there as well. I mean, uh, yeah, we would do ourselves credit if we if we diversify our news sources and get various perspectives that aren't just our own and aren't just the American perspective on issues. Yeah. Well, David, we close every episode out with ten quick questions. Uh, are you ready? I can't wait to hear some of for your sure. answers for these. Okay. Uh, number one, what is your morning drink of choice? Black coffee. Okay, I figured since you spent but but your time in Turkey, Turkey is is both coffee and tea country, right? Culture. That is correct. And I, and and their tea is a good strong tea, so it might as well be coffee. <laughs> so now you've spent time in Uz Uzbekistan. What's what's there? Are they a tea country or are they a coffee country? They're very much a, a tea country. 
Yes. Yeah. And is it uh, the same kind of like that that strong Middle Eastern? It's not. Tea? It's it's oh, okay. it's a very light tea, uh, and oftentimes green tea versus black tea, um, which you know we're more used to in, in the U.S. Okay. All right. Uh, number two, who is a go-to musical artist or group for you? So I'm going to cheat a little bit on this. Well, you know, of course, after the broken spokes, which, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know I, I don't, I listen to music primarily in my car um, when I'm driving, you know, uh, places, you know, um, go to work back and forth to DC on a uh, somewhat regular basis. And, you know, when I, when I listen to music, I, I listen to uh, traditional country music as a genre. Like I, I have a few go-to artists. Like I like Waylon Jennings and like Don Williams and I like Merle Haggard. And, you know, those are kind of my go-to ones. Buck Owens when I need a little pick me up. Um, but yeah, I, that's, that's the kind of music that, uh, that I love. And I, I think it harkens me back to my grandmother's uh, kitchen when I was a kid. And that was what was on the radio. You know, if, if anybody needs a pick me up, you are right. A good Buck Owens and the Buckaroos will, will put a smile <laughs> on your face and a tap in your toe. 100%. For sure. yep. Okay. Uh, number three, what movie can you watch over and over again and it doesn't get old? The Longest Day. Uh, I don't know if you're oh, familiar yes. with it, but it's it's a World War II uh, movie about the D-Day uh, invasion. And it takes both a, a German perspective and um uh, an american uh, and british perspective as well and it's just star-studded it's got like robert mitchum and john wayne and uh richard burton and i mean it's just a, a young sean connery like it's just amazing that movie was so i'm big into classic films i really like classic films a lot and i saw that film when i was a kid and it was the first world war ii movie and i was also into war movies so i mean i was used to seeing that genre of film but that i remember distinctly that was the first um world war ii movie i saw that also had the german perspective where the yep. office where the people were actually speaking speaking real, german real german with the english subtitles across the bottom and that 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 really that, that sticks in my mind the first time i saw that like because i knew it was an american movie so but to see it to see the whole story or at least more of the story told than just uh again speaking to different perspectives and uh no that is a great film if you haven't seen it it really is good i agree uh okay number four what is the last thing that you read the last thing that I mean, I, I constantly have books in the state of being half read um, and don't get finished. But the, the last book that I finished was a book called The Orientalist, which um, is a biography of Lev Nussbaum, who was uh, a, a, a Jew born in Baku, Azerbaijan, uh, but then went on to transform himself into Assad Bey, uh, a a an oriental writer um and he was writing in german um in germany um converted to islam um and lived out this this really fascinating life where like in baku his his mother was part of the revolutionary movement and this what well, became the soviet union and personally knew stalin and you know he goes uh, after the Bolshevik revolution. He has to go to uh, Central Asia and then to Constantinople and then into Europe where he becomes uh, a very prolific writer in German, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, but because he has a Jewish background uh, in the Nazi period, he has to um, 
reshape himself and starts writing under a, a, another pseudonym um, and ultimately dies in fascist Italy uh, in the mid forties. Um, but it's just a fascinating uh, read. And I, I, and there's just so many parallels with my own life that it, it was one of the Amazon recommended it to me. And I'm like, yeah, that looks interesting. And I, I grabbed it. And, uh, Sounds like that guy needs a, a biographical film made of his life. Holy cow. Yeah. Holy cow. Okay. Uh, number five, what's your favorite pizza topping? Jalapenos. Okay. All right. Question about cultural thing here. So in Uzbekistan, do they eat something similar to a pizza? Like, is do they have their own version of it? Or or are you going to get Italian-style pizzas in Uzbekistan? You're going to get Italian-style pizzas in Uzbekistan. Um, okay. Yeah. They, like, they have pizza places now, and you can go, you know, get a pizza. I'm trying to think if there's anything... I mean, yeah, I'm, there's very few parallels to a pizza. I mean, they're, they are a very, you know, uh, they have a dough culture. I mean, the bread is amazing. Um, and, you know, it's freshly baked bread every day. You go down to the bakery and you get so your bread. Is it, and all is, that, it a, is it more of a flat bread or is it more of like a, a European style loaf? It's more of a, it's a round loaf. Um, so it's, it's more of a flat bread, but it, it's, you know, it tends to be like about an inch and a half oh, thick okay. around the outside. Um and you can certainly use the dough to make like a, a pizza kind of thing. Um, but yeah, they don't have, um, yeah, they, they don't have something analogous to a pizza that I uh, can think of right. Of course, as soon as I'm done here, my wife is going to tell me that I'm wrong. My wife is Uzbek. <laughs> um, and we'll tell her, well, you forgot about something else. And I probably <laughs> did forget about something else. All right. Number six, laying on the beach or going for a hike? Oh, going for a hike without question. I yeah, hate the okay. beach. I, yeah, you know, okay. I, I love the woods. I love the mountains. I yeah, love you're hiking. very active with your sons in the Boy Scouts, right? That's I, correct. I, I've yep. seen that on, on social media. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. All right, number seven. Oh, I'm great. Here we go. You've invited me over for dinner. What are you making? Well, if I'm making it, you're getting hamburgers because that's about <laughs> all I'm capable of. Um, okay. My wife is the cook in the family, and she's an amazing cook. Um, and she would make you uh, a very nice traditional uzbek meal which, I, oh. yeah which would probably consist of uh what's called they call it plov or osh which is a rice dish um and with with meat and carrots and sometimes um uh, raisins as well uh it's really tasty and it, maybe she would make you dumplings as well um which which is also uh you know it's just amazing Stuff. I I love trying new cultural foods, and I've never had Uzbeki food, so I'm I'm there. I am. There. <laughs> <laughs> You've traveled a lot, so this next question I'm kind of curious about: What is a dream vacation destination for you? You know, so uh, ironically, uh, the answer to that question is: I would love to spend more time in Germany and Switzerland, where my ancestors come from. Like, like I said, I made a, a short trip there in high school. I've gone. I've, for other very short trips, like had a weekend or so that I was able to tack on to uh, a business trip uh, in the region. But I've spent very little time um, in Germany. And, you know, even on one of those short trips that I had when I was in Frankfurt, I was able to go out to some of the villages um, where uh, some of my known ancestors came from and uh, walk around in those towns. And it was just amazing. And I would love to be able to spend like three, four weeks, six weeks, six months doing <laughs> doing that uh but i just haven't had the opportunity I, I traveled to so many other parts of the world uh but haven't been able to spend the time there 
Okay. Uh, number nine, what is something that you're afraid of? Screwing my kids up. Like that's, <laughs> that's like my big fear in life is like being a parent is really intimidating. I mean, I love it. You know, toughest job you'll ever love, but like, Oh, there's so many things that you can't control. Right. Yeah. Like you just yeah. got to set them on the right path and hope for the best. Yeah. Um, no, I hear you. I hear you. It is, it is scary. Yeah. <laughs> All right, last question. What job other than one that you have had would you love to have? Yeah, so yeah, I think I would like to be Indiana Jones um, and go around the world and you know fight Nazis and you know discover ancient artifacts. Or considering that that job's already taken, um, I guess. I mean, in all seriousness, I would like to be like an archivist um, or uh, a librarian in like a, a special um, collections uh, section of a library. I love old manuscripts and old, um, it, you know, things in other scripts, which I think is also part of what like has drawn me to the, the international path. Like I, I, I love things in old German script. I love things in Arabic script. I love things in the Cyrillic script. I mean, um, that variety of, of human expression, uh, I just fascinates me. Uh, and so I could spend hours and hours and hours in a, in a archive or in a library, just, just doing that. Well, David, thank you so much for agreeing to come up here on the front porch. Uh, it, what a fascinating conversation. I hope that, uh, what we talked about, some things we talked about will let people think a little bit and open their eyes to different perspectives of the, of this crazy world that we live in. But I just thank you for the work that you do and keep doing it. And, um, geez. Maybe I'll have you back on. I'd love to do an an episode sometime that's like a uh, intro to like religions, where I'd have like you could speak about like the basics of what's Islam, and then I could have one of my friends that's Jewish speak about the Judaism. So I'll keep that in mind, and uh, if that ever comes to fruition, you're getting a phone call from me. Right, right <laughs> Sounds away. good. You know so where to find me. You got it. Thanks so much, David, and uh, we'll talk soon. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Doug's Front Porch, a conversational podcast with your host, Doug Maidenford. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Five stars only, please. Follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Doug's Front Porch. Also, please feel free to tell all of your friends about the show, and I'll see you all next time on My Front Porch. Music.